underlying it all is this idea that if Christians aren't in charge, culture will go to hell in a handbasket. And so then it becomes Christians' moral and ethical duty to coerce and control and steer culture in the exact direction we want it to go. I mean, it just becomes so... It goes from that good intention to very toxic very quickly. Welcome back to another episode of Holy Heretics, Losing Religion and Finding Jesus from the Sophia Society. We are your hosts, Melanie. And Gary Allen. Before we get started talking about the topic of power, the third and final of our three Ps, we did want to just mention that we have a brand new ebook, like brand spanking new, called Faith Deconstruction 101. And you can get it for free simply by signing up for our biweekly email called Liminal Spaces. This email is just a quick read every other week, and it offers some thoughts and questions and meditations, even poems sometimes. And this is for anyone who feels that they're in a time of transition or uncertainty or even deconstruction in their faith. So if you'd like to get the ebook and the newsletter all for free, just head over to our website, sophiasociety.org. That's S-O-P-H-I-A society.org to sign up. All right. If you're just joining us for the first time, we have been talking about the unholy trinity that we believe has replaced God at the center of American Christianity, particularly white evangelical Christianity. And that trinity is made up of what we call the three Ps, purity, patriarchy, and power. We spent the last three episodes covering both purity and patriarchy, so definitely check those episodes out if you're interested. But we're finishing up today by talking about the final P, which is power. Power is a weird one, and it's a doozy because it really permeates every area of our lives. But it also makes it difficult to talk about because it's just so vast and hard to pin down. And in our introductory episode, we mentioned that all three of the P's play off of each other, feeding each other and reinforcing each other. But just like we tend to think of God as being the most important member of the actual Trinity, today's P power is definitely the one that kind of rises to the top or is like the most important member of this trinity. Purity and patriarchy are definitely huge focuses in today's evangelicalism, but it does seem that they're both there as ways to keep the church in power. So let's let's get started. One thing we did when we were researching this topic was we posted about it on social media. And when we did that, some people asked us, what the definition of power was that we were using. And that definitely got some interesting lines of thinking going, but we'll just start there. So for for clarity's sake, what kind of power are we talking about, Gary Allen? I think we're talking about the ability to influence others or maybe even to produce an effect or to have control or authority either in a situation or over people. And in Christian circles, the word power is often synonymous with the word dominion, which kind of references back to in Genesis where, you know, human beings are granted dominion over the world. I I honestly don't really like that word. I would rather use the word stewardship because that that provides a different posture Mm -hmm. over the world. But in this episode, we're going to look specifically at how the institutional church has used power and even abused power to maintain control over culture. One of my favorite authors is Thomas Merton. 
and he has this great quote about power. He said, power always protects the good of some at the expense of others. And, you know, it kind of brings up a couple of questions. First, who holds power in our church and our home and our culture? And then who is being protected uh, by that power? And it does surely seem like that the answer to both of those questions, at least in the United States, is, gosh, it's mostly white men who have power and are protected by power. That's probably why, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not so like crazy enamored by the uh, recent uh, administration change. I mean, yes, obviously very glad that the former president is the former president. But to be honest, the new Biden administration looks pretty similar to the old one. I mean, we still have an old, rich, white guy running things. So <laughs> in some ways, the the power structure hasn't changed at all. Yeah. And, and it really often seems like when we are looking at this, that religion and power are in this incestuous relationship with each other, especially in a culture like in America, where Christians are the ones in power. So it's it's a weird dynamic that's happening, but it's like religious leaders turn these political leaders almost into gods or they kind of like cozy up to these political leaders and um, try to get them on their side so that then these political leaders in return will empower and even corrupt religious leaders with these promises of wealth and backing and the power to then impose their religious views on the entire society. One thing I keep thinking about and I really haven't fully figured out yet is how fear plays into all of this. Because Mm. on the one hand, um, I can see how like power is what comes first and then fear comes into play. So for example, uh, someone gains power and they realize, oh, I like being the one who is protected and I like being the one who has all the wealth and I like being the one who gets to make the decisions. So then the fear comes in, like, what happens if I lose it? What what am I going to do? And so then the fear causes them to just do everything they can to keep their power. But I also wonder if it could be the other way around. So, um, for example, with the church, uh, do does the fear come first? Like, th- does it become the driving motivation because there's so much fear of sin abounding or paganism or or not having the ability to define morality or or even even the good fear of people choosing something other than uh, Jesus. But all of these fears then play into, well, the only way we can assuage our fears is to seek power, because then we can keep all of these horrible things from happening, all these things that we're afraid of. And I I don't know. I don't know which one comes first, because I could see it being both ways. But I think no matter what, fear plays a part. I mean, think of all the sayings that we have heard, obviously recently, but we've heard them for decades. You know, like, oh, the Democrats are trying to take your guns or the trans people are trying to make it so that your daughters have to use bathrooms with grown men. And who knows what's going to happen to them in there or talk of this sinister homosexual agenda that they're just trying to corrupt us all. Or even the idea that all Muslims just want to kill all Americans all the time. 
or even like the the more recent idea that's really taking hold is like the libs, the libtards are trying to kill God. I think all of these <laughs> come from our fear and they all then are protected by power. And so whether one comes first or the other, I think that that's a that's another incestuous relationship we see within with religion and power and fear. Yeah, we should probably do an entire podcast just on fear, you know, and mm. and and really realizing and looking at how the church has peddled fear for generations, uh, you know, as a way not only to keep their power over culture, but also as an incentive for faith. I mean, just think about the fact that we tell people they're going to burn in hell for all eternity if they don't accept God. That's that's driven by fear. Mm. And, you know, more and more, it feels like that Christians are at the forefront of fear-driven language, fear-driven politics, and fear-driven spirituality, which really is, a, I think, a great litmus test to the fact that you're probably a fundamentalist. You know, it, mm. you're, you're either a fundamentalist or a part of a fundamentalist community if your driving force is fear, you know, if you're motivated by fear. And then if you use fear as a way to force conformity, and, and you know, like I said, that's probably a whole other podcast, <laughs> but I, th I think you're onto something here as it relates to this weird relationship between power and fear. Yeah. And I saw something on Twitter the other day that totally corroborated all this. Uh, I don't know if any of you remember VeggieTales, uh, but the guy who created VeggieTales, his name is Phil Vischer. Oh, yeah. He tweeted what he called a brief history of white evangelical fear. And it was spot on. I will link to the actual tweet in the show notes for anyone who's interested in seeing it. But he basically outlined all these things that we've been told to be afraid of over the last century. He said, 1920s, Darwinists and modernists, look out. 1930s, socialists, look out. 1940s, distracted by Nazis, hang on. <laughs> 1950s, Communists, look out. <laughs> 1960s, socialists and radicals and feminists, look out. 1970s, gays, look out. 1980s, even more gays and public schools, look out. 1990s, Clintons, look out. <laughs> 2000s, Muslims, look out. 2010s, more Clintons and liberals, look out. And 2020s, Marxists and BLMers, look out. Well, and it would be funny if it weren't true, you know, I mean, <laughs> we've been told who to fear and how to fear them for generations. And, you know, sadly, it, it even goes further back than like the 1920s, as he's talking about. I mean, evangelicals in the South promoted and defended slavery for fear that their white culture would change mm -hmm. if African-Americans were freed. It was Protestants in the 19th century who spoke out against the growing number of Catholic immigrants that were that was entering the United States because they were afraid they were going to lose their Protestant nation. So, so I think this fear, this basic fear of the other, really drives the church to pursue power in order to not only just to protect its own special interest uh, politically, but also religiously. And look, we see this every four years where the political slogans are so fear-driven. Mm particularly in the church. You know, this is the greatest, biggest, most important election ever. You know, the soul of the nation is at stake. I mean, really? Yeah. What if it's just another election? I mean, come on, let's 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 move past this 
being motivated by fear in order then to grab and pursue power. Well, unfortunately, like, I think some ministries would stop to exist if we didn't have the fear element. One thing that came to mind when you were saying that was uh, actually James Dobson. He is the founder of Focus on the Family, for those who don't know. And back in 2008, he wrote a 16-page letter that was supposed to be written from the perspective of someone in 2012 like reaching back in time to someone in 2008 to say, this is what is going to happen if we elect Obama. And it was 16 pages. So let me tell you, it was fear mongering on <laughs> steroids and, and in a like attachment that they had at the beginning. Um, they they were kind of it was not written from the same like 2012 person perspective. It was just supposed to be written by James Dobson kind of explaining his motives. He said it was all the logical outcome of not only Obama's policies, but all of the other, quote, liberal or far left people who Obama would appoint to positions of power if he got elected. And I will link to it in the show notes for anyone who wants a good laugh. Uh, but it's insane. And none of the things that he said in there came true. None of them. But it was all to get to mm. like motivate and mobilize Christians to vote against Obama. Um, and what's interesting, too, is without fear, I don't think ministries would be, be able to raise as much money as they do. So it's fascinating that this nonprofit organization was operating fully on fear. But well, what's interesting is, is I actually worked at Focus on the Family for about 10 years. And one of the jokes among the staff was we actually wanted a Democrat in power because at that time you could raise more money if there was a Democrat in power because you were peddling fear. Hmm. You know, people were just afraid, oh, the, we're going to lose the culture. So they actually received far more funding during the Clinton years than they did during the Bush years, which is, wow. you know, I think a, a testament to what you're what you're saying here, Mel. Yeah. Well, and what's maybe more frustrating about this whole thing is that this fear mongering not only raises more money, not only gets Christians to vote how these people in power want them to vote, but it is now either spawning or at least largely contributing to the spread of crazy conspiracy theories that almost seem to be directly targeted at white evangelicals. I mean, why is it that such a large portion of evangelicals believe the election was stolen or that COVID is either a hoax or a biological weapon released on the world by China? Or why is it that there's this <laughs> huge belief that liberals are trying to cancel Christmas or that a small group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles are controlling the government for their evil intentions. I mean, it's it's infuriating, but all of these conspiracy theories have taken on lives of their own, by and large, through the support of not only the, the vast majority of evangelicals, but especially the support of evangelical influencers or, or leaders like, say, Franklin Graham, who is Billy Graham's son. He said... He, quote, tends to believe the election was stolen or back again to James Dobson, who wrote, guess what? Another letter saying, quote, 
America faces the possibility of catastrophic change. By the time you receive this letter, you will know what I can only speculate about today. Everything depends on two legal developments. First, whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court addresses the legitimacy of the presidential election on November 3rd. The second depends on the outcome of two runoff elections in Georgia scheduled for January 5th. On these two turning points, hang the future of our great nation and eventually the world. What? I mean, it sounds like he's saying the world is going to end. Yeah, I mean, right. And what happens if he's wrong? (laughs) Good question. That's a very good question. Well, we know what's interesting about all these kind of uh, statements is we never hold these people accountable. You know, Mm. when they are wrong and when, when things don't end, when catastrophe doesn't come, when Obama is a president... And no one actually doubles back to them and says, hey, can you recount that statement? Like, <laughs> no, we just we just let it mm. go, which is probably worse than even what they're doing. Yeah. Well, and the last example I wanted to point out, which is maybe the saddest, is Eric Metaxas. Uh, it, for anyone who doesn't know, he was once a really highly respected intellectual and author. He wrote a biography on... Bonhoeffer a few years back, and um, it was considered like the definitive volume on Bonhoeffer, but he seems to have lost his mind over the last few years, and even his biography has come into question for whether it was actually revisionist history. Maybe you saw the video of him punching a protester outside the White House a few months ago. Yep, I did. Um, And he still believes to this day that Trump won in a landslide. And to top that off, as a result of this apparently stolen election, he forecasts that many Christians are going to be imprisoned. And he calls the election steal, quote, the most horrible thing that ever happened in the history of our nation, end quote. So not slavery, not the U.S. dropping two nuclear bombs on civilian populations, not segregation and Jim Crow laws or the Civil War, not 9-11. This, this is the worst thing, according to Metaxas, that has ever happened to America. What's really sad, too, is like these aren't just voices of a a couple of quacks, you know? I mean, these are big-name celebrities and admired leaders in the evangelical world who have a ton of influence but it also shows just how much they have been corrupted by power. And, and not surprisingly, you know, a lot of their followers and readers are just lapping it up. And we saw this recently with the insurrection at the Capitol building where the New York Times reported that during the siege, there was this incredible presence of white evangelicals and it, it was pretty unmistakable. Sure, the Proud Boys were, ba- were there, and sure, there were some, you know, neo-Nazis there, but intermixed with them was a, a group of evangelicals who, you know, literally stopped to kneel in the street and pray in the name of Jesus, or they, they asked God to, you know, restore their value systems. We, we all saw the signs proclaiming Jesus saves, or Jesus is my president. Or the Christian flag. They brought the Christian flag into the Capitol. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we all saw those signs. You know, uh, one read even, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. And for so many people, (laughs) those are synonymous. 
And that tragic day, I think, was a, the pinnacle of an entire evangelical Christian nationalistic movement that really had its roots in the persona of former President Trump, who, you know, in a lot of ways touted himself as this great protector of the evangelical cause. He even said he was going to protect God. And I think that's why 81% of evangelicals supported him in the 2016 election and why over 70% re-voted for him, if you will, in 2020. And, you know, with everything that we've talked about in terms of this individual who's a pretty lewd, profane man with really doesn't seem to have a pious bone in his body, a lot of us have hmm. been so baffled by the evangelical support of of, of former President Trump. And yet when you start to, to think about it and look at it, it's all tied into power and the pursuit of power. Mm. And, you know, one, he positioned himself as this kind of alpha strong man who was going to protect evangelicalism. And I think that evangelicals used him um, really to expand their dominion over culture. And the sad part is when you're motivated by power, you, you'll get in bed with just about anyone who's going to promise you that power. And unfortunately, you know, we, we saw that on the global stage over the last four years. And I will say, I can't imagine and I don't know that we'll ever know the damage done to the witness of the church because of this unholy union, the the the, the damage done to the cause of Christ by this evangelical support of this man, it's, I, I just don't think that we're ever really going to fully understand how, how, how damaging mm. it is done to the church. Well, and I think that's why it's so important for us to be talking about this today. I mean, when we decided to do this little mini series on the unholy trinity and the three Ps, we weren't motivated by some abstract desire to have some intellectual theological conversation about these abstract concepts. We wanted to have this conversation because the church's willingness to abandon God in pursuit of these three Ps is having real world effects and it's damaging individual lives. And like you said, the witness of the church, the world is watching and what they're seeing is a church that looks nothing like Jesus, in fact, is in direct opposition to almost everything Jesus stood for. So I guess my question becomes, why are Christians in particular so susceptible to this seductive siren call of power? Why do we think that in order to save the world, we have to do it through power? Why do we think that forcing our values on people or legislating morality, if you've ever heard that term, and even enacting this theocracy where Christians kind of rule in the name of God, why do we think that's what Jesus wanted us to do? Well, I think it's probably because we don't know any other way, um, at, at least in the West. Uh, thankfully, it's not always been the case. I mean, the single greatest factor that, that has changed the nature and the character of the church over the last 1,700 years is power. The, the church we see today is in many ways the antithesis of the church established by those early followers of Jesus, because when we look historically at the church, especially in its infancy, it was a small band of cultural misfits who lived on the margins of the Roman Empire, and they had no power. They, they didn't even desire it. They didn't pursue it. 
In fact, they were hunted, they were persecuted, they were oppressed for believing that Jesus was Lord and, and that Caesar was not. And strangely enough, they prospered as a powerless community of resistance to the Roman Empire. And now, obviously, during those first couple of centuries, um, it, the church was underground, it was anti-imperial, and it was tiny, but it still posed a real threat to the, the, the Roman Empire. That is, of course, until the fourth century when Constantine arranged this little marriage between the Bride of Christ and Caesar. And ever since then, we have become the great defenders of the status quo. We've become the great defenders of the powerful. Even uh, a pastor, Robin Myers, who uh, ministers of in a church in Oklahoma, he gave a, a lecture called Saving Jesus from the Church. And in it, he says, How on earth did followers of Jesus, who counseled us to pray for our enemies, love the stranger, protect orphans and widows, how did they become the voting base for a major political party in America who can be depended on to pray for the death of our enemies, to exploit our fear and mistrust of the stranger, to cut programs that help orphans and widows, and to make life miserable for gays and lesbians? What is the answer to every one of those questions? I think the answer comes back to power. And when we mm. got in bed with power, it changed the entire witness of the church. Yet, <laughs> despite all these horrible things that we just talked about, I do think that for many, not all, but many, somewhere buried deep down is a good intention, which is the desire to change culture and the world for good. I mean, I think for many people, they observe their friends, their family members, their coworkers pursuing things like sex or just relationships or success or money or whatever it is as an ultimate thing. And then when they're devastated and feeling even emptier than they were before, many Christians really just see that and go, I want to offer you the hope that I've found. Um, or maybe these Christians even experienced the emptiness themselves. And so they want to help others avoid that pain too. But then what happens is they are told by the powers that be, the Christian powers that be, the only way to do that is to make the entire country, the entire culture, the entire society Christian. Mm. If we don't, then people won't know the love of Jesus, which is completely bonkers, obviously. But that's that's what the... Christian leaders have peddled for so long. And that, I think, is when it becomes problematic because it's not about inviting people into the story of Jesus. It becomes about forcing the story of Jesus on them or co coercing them to follow their system that they have set up. And there's no more choice involved anymore, which obviously, anytime you do that, people are not going to want what you have. <laughs> They're not going to want to be forced into something. And I do think that this is where that need for gaining power does come into play because you can only force a few people to believe what you want them to believe if you're just the pastor of the friendly neighborhood church. But you can force an entire country to believe what you want when you use laws and politics and even entire political parties to achieve your goals. It comes down to that age old 
Christ and culture conversation. Like, is Christ above culture? Is Christ against culture? Is Christ in culture? What is the relationship here? And I think, unfortunately, for so many generations, Christians have decided that Christ is against culture. And so they they chose this path of dominating and controlling culture as the main way to change it. Um, and I don't say that lightly because mm. I say that based on what I see and based on this evidence. I, there are groups who are doing this in plain sight unapologetically. I, like the Family Research Council comes to mind. They advocate for, quote, biblical values regarding sexuality and the family. So that means they are one of the loudest voices in the fight to deny basic human rights to LGBTQIA plus people. Um, and their mission statement even says that they are about, quote, advancing faith. Which, if you think about that for a second, that's very cru- crusading, conquering type language, which is interesting. Mm. Um, focus on the family also comes to mind. I mean, we've mentioned them a few times, but for years they had a policy arm that's whole goal was to directly influence laws. They don't have it anymore because they were forced to dissolve it because they it was in violation of their 501c3 nonprofit status. Um, but then there's also the Colson Center, which is named after Chuck Colson, who is a well-known Christian apologist. And if you've ever heard of it, they also have these political and power leanings their website has a program that's called the colson fellows and they describe it as quote a powerful network of over two thousand devoted men and women around the world who share your passion for seeking god's truth lived out in every aspect of life and culture end quote not just like lived out personally but in every aspect of culture so Let's change the culture to be what we want it to be. And we mentioned this in the first part of our purity culture discussion, but underlying it all is this idea that if Christians aren't in charge, culture will go to hell in a handbasket. And so then it becomes Christians' moral and ethical duty to coerce and control and steer culture in the exact direction we want it to go. I mean, it just becomes so, it goes from that good intention to very toxic very quickly. Yeah, it's crazy because it's even embedded in a lot of our evangelistic efforts, you know, especially from a, a language perspective. I mean, there is this dominating drive to convert people instead of converse with people. And often our efforts mm. In these evangelistic efforts, we we truly commit apologetic violence. We we want to win an argument. We want to convert someone, even if it means we have to coerce or manipulate them. Going back to what you were talking about in terms of losing control over culture, that oh oh my gosh, you know things are going to go to hell in a handbasket if we're not in charge. Stanley Hauerwas, who's an ethicist and professor at Duke Divinity School wrote about this several years ago in his book, After Christendom, in which he's trying to help Christians come to terms with the fact that we are living in a growingly and increasingly post-Christian culture. And he, he says, perhaps the hardest habit to break from our Constantinianism is the assumption that if we do not govern, then surely society will fall into anarchy or totalitarianism. 
the funny thing is he goes on to, to show how there's so many different examples throughout Western Christianity where when we were in charge, things went to hell really quickly. And, you know, when you think God is on your side, <laughs> there, there's no limit to some of the violence that you can do in God's name if you think you're actually working and functioning for God. And we've seen this, um, the willingness of Christian nationalists to get in bed with totalitarianism in order to maintain their positions of power. And I think there's a combination here and a connection here with this culture warrior mentality that a lot of us grew up with. There's this undercurrent of us versus them. You know, it's a very dualistic way of seeing the world, which pits conservative Christians against everyone else. And so you have to almost imagine or make up enemies in order to fight against uh, if you're going to win the culture war. You know, so we have this imaginary gay agenda or you've got to own the libs. Um, we, we, we've seen this in politics, of course. Uh, House Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was just spoofed on SNL. Oh, yeah, that was great. Yeah, I mean, and, and it, well, the weird thing is, like, I cringe at these people who put, you know, I'm a Christian on my Twitter profile, and then they uh, promote violence against Democrats mm. on their that same social media pro profile. And she was actually just caught on tape verbally abusing David Hogue, who many of us remember as a survivor of the Parkland shooting massacre. And she's just one of a myriad of voices coming from Christianity that is espousing fear, as we talked about earlier, mm. and, and espousing this sort of warrior mentality. You know, we've got to fight and control culture. Rod Dreher, who's an author and writer at the American Conservative, he, he just comes right out and says it. He says, quote, we in the modern West are living under barbarism, though we do not recognize it. Our scientists, our judges, our princes, our scholars, and our scribes they are at work demolishing the faith, the family, gender, and even what it means to be human. Our barbarians have exchanged the animal pelts and spears of the past for designer suits and smartphones. Goodness. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, just listen to the language. He, he's, he's calling the other barbarians. Mm. And once you dehumanize someone by calling them that, there's no limit to the violence that you can perpetrate against them. And even just last week, something a little bit less sinister, but just as toxic was a, a tweet that blogger um, Matt Walsh put on, on, on Twitter. And I'll be honest, I, I, I hate to even mention him because please do not go to his website. Just, just don't <laughs> drive, you know, don't, we, we're not trying to drive traffic and audience and advertisers to his site. But he did say this. He said, the best thing conservatives can do to reclaim culture is have a bunch of kids and homeschool them. <laughs> now, yeah, I mean, notice the language. It, it's underlying and pervasive that the assumption is our task, our job is to reclaim culture instead of serve culture. So this drive to be in charge is crazy pervasive in our evangelical roots. And as you said, probably rooted in some good intentions, but honestly, that doesn't make it any less perverse. No, but I, I can see how they got to that point. I mean, I don't want to, like, rip them apart as if they're just totally insane, totally wacko, because there is a logic to it, like we just talked about. But 
it doesn't make sense at all when we look at the person whose name is on the religion and and how he demonstrated what it means to build God's kingdom on earth. Maybe that is the crux of the matter. Um, Maybe we think that the only way to build God's kingdom is to have power over culture, to conquer in his name, and to build castles and and uh, look at everyone else who's against us as the enemy and, and force those we conquer to, you know, convert or die. <laughs> but that's not the way to build God's kingdom, because if we look at Jesus' life, he refused that option over and over and over again. He was straight up tempted by Satan in the desert to use power to bring about his good ends. But he refused, knowing his good ends would be compromised by making a deal with the actual devil. You know, like he refused that. And instead, he did it his own beautiful way, which is to bring about the kingdom through suffering and not through power. I just love how Leslie Newbigin, who is who was a missionary, described it in his book, Foolishness to the Greeks. He said, the king reigns from a tree. The reign of God has indeed come upon us, and its sign is not a golden throne, but a wooden cross. That's a stark difference, and I think it's a really astounding aspect of how Jesus worked to bring about his kingdom. It was always through invitation and not coercion. He he really honestly, he could have forced himself on us. He could have come down off that cross. Uh, he could have chosen to either collude with Rome in order to gain power, or he could have chosen to come in and try and, and like conquer. He could have ridden in on a war horse if he wanted to, but he didn't. Instead, he brought it about through his death and resurrection and through powerlessness and vulnerability. Which is probably the key to the entire conversation about power. You know, if if we keep in mind that Jesus reveals not just the very nature and character of God, but also what it means to be human, you know, we're going to have to deal with the reality and the fact that Jesus chose downward mobility. Mm. He was poor. He was powerless. And he lived a life of vulnerability. I mean, he he came into the world as a conquered, colonized, brown person living under the authority and power of a brutal empire. And while everyone else around him was picking up swords against that, that empire to overthrow it, he chose another path. And you know, one of the big questions is, uh, what do we make of the fact that the God of the universe entered the world as a defenseless, powerless baby, and he left the world as a vulnerable man on, on a cross. I mean, what, what kind of God does that reveal? Certainly not the God of, of civil religion, certainly not the God of conquering and crusading. You know, he took the form of a servant, uh, least of all. He was at the bottom of society, which really begs the question, how have we flipped the script? Jesus mm. and the early church were 
literally at the bottom of society. And we find ourselves today at the top. We are the ones in power. We were the ones in charge. And I think that's a, a haunting question that all of us are going to have to wrestle with at some point during our spiritual journey is we've inherited this, this narrative of power and we need, we are, we're going to have to figure out what to do with that. Yeah, I, everything you just said reminds me of the verse in Second Corinthians somewhere where Paul wrote, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. I do think it is interesting that Christianity's two most prominent figures, Paul and Jesus, were both martyred by the Mm. state. They were both victims of the Roman Empire. Was that an accident or or is that significant? And and more importantly, what ramifications does that have for Christians who are living 2000 years later? And, and what ramifications does that have for how we respond now, both to culture and to the powers that be? I feel like it reveals the truth about power. You know, Jesus and Paul are the manifestations of early Christianity. They're both ostracized and, and killed by the powers that be. And I think what it points us to, at least anecdotally, is that the powers that be, whether it's Rome or Egypt or Babylon or America, are almost always in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. Mm. And in, in, until we come to terms with that as Americans, until we really start to strip away this myth that America is a Christian nation, we're never going to understand that. Um, you know, if if all the great empires that we see in the Bible are antithetical to the people of God, who set themselves against the ways of God, why then do we assume that the American empire of our day is any different? The sad thing is that a lot of times that we go courting power, we even collude with power instead of confronting it. The last four years, we've seen the former president create an evangelical advisory council, something, by the way, that he didn't do or create for any other religion. Hmm. And a lot of people celebrated that. Hey, look, we've got access to the White House. You know, the president is listening to us. We're powerful now. It's cool to be a Christian. Well, well, here's the problem with that. Once you are at the president's bidding or at the prime minister's bidding or at Pharaoh's bidding, it becomes harder and harder to speak truth to power, to confront those in authority who are potentially using their power to do evil. Now, all of a sudden, you're just a court priest. You know, you're just at the mm. bidding of, of the president. And so I think maybe a better posture for the church is instead of praising, you know, these God-ordained positions of power, we become a a prophetic voice of critique to those who use and abuse power. And and I, I mean this across party lines. You know, I, I, I know it's easy in, in today's world to 
to blame uh, the right wing or blame conservatives on doing this, but everyone has done it. Democrats have done it. Republicans mm. have done it. Moderates have done it. You know, non-Americans have done it. So this isn't unique to us. It, it, it does show the temptation of religious leaders to pursue power uh, as opposed to being prophetic and being able to stand there in front of Pharaoh, in front of Pilate, in front of the president and say, you know, you do wrong and we're here to confront that. Mm. Well, I guess this brings to mind a question that I've been wrestling with a lot because it's super important for how the church can move forward, or at least those of us who say we don't want anything to do with the religion that we see on display widely in America. We want a religion that, or we we at least want to look like Jesus. Um, And that question is, should Christians seek or even accept positions of power? I don't think we should. Um, I know that's a bold statement, and I know that there are wonderful people in power. There are incredible politicians and individuals who hold power over uh, culture that are Christians, and, and there's no judgment on that. I'm just beginning to to see how dangerous it is. And, you know, you quoted Leslie Newbigin earlier, and he goes on in that book to say, can anyone who follows the way of the cross sit in the seat of Pilate when it falls vacant. The place of the church is thus not in the seats of the establishment, but in the camps and marching columns of the protesters. Mm. So, I don't know, Mel, maybe to answer your, your question, so instead of a powerful Christianity, we need a prophetic Christianity, a Christianity that calls into question the brutal normalcy of power, of the empire in which we live and move and have our being, and to challenge the powers that be with the truth of the gospel. Because we need to really get back to the fact that Jesus never told us to pick up a sword. He asked us to carry our cross and pick up our cross. And Mm -hmm. I I just would love to see a return to a, a, a scandalous Christianity that was embodied by the early church that sided with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized and didn't side with the powerful. So, you know, in some ways we have a choice. Um, We can either embrace a Christianity that is in service for the world and and of the world, or we can embrace a Christianity that uses power to control the world. And to me, though, that's the big question of our day. Um, We do find ourselves powerful as Christians. We find ourselves wealthy as Christians. We find ourselves privileged as Christians, and we're going to have to come to terms with that and figure out, is this the way of Jesus? And if not, then what, you know, what, were our, what will our lives look like without pursuing that? I loved that quote from Nubigen, the place of the churches is in the camps and marching columns of the protesters. That's not just powerful. For me, it's a total paradigm shift because I was— like you mentioned earlier, taught that we are in a war with culture, so we are now to be culture warriors. But I don't think we need to be culture warriors. I think we need to be culture wooers. Or maybe that's not the right word. I don't know. I just like the image of attracting people to Jesus through our love and our service rather than forcing people or demanding that people follow us, or like I said earlier, um, 
convert or die, you know? Um, And I really think that that kind of religion is one that will not be tolerated by the powers that be. Like, Rome had no problem with the Pharisees. Rome had a big problem with the early church. Why is that? Maybe it's because the early church threatened their power by calling it into question, whereas the Pharisees did not because they colluded with the Romans. So I don't know what all the answers are, but I do often wonder how much actual good the church could do if we stopped pouring all these t- all our time and energy and all these resources and developing sermons um, about electing the, quote, right people so that they will enforce our morals and turn them into laws. I wonder how much good we could do if we instead put all that into actually loving the people in our neighborhoods and serving the least of these who are all around us. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do think elected officials are important because they do change how an entire culture is run. But I just don't think that they should be nearly as much of a focus as we've made them because it doesn't seem like the kingdom of God comes about through the powerful or through electing laws. I think the kingdom of God comes about but also happens every single time we are in our communities loving and serving and not caring about who notices or how that advances our own personal causes. And I I think that, if anything, the Bible has preserved this great story or thread of people who stood up to power for the the sake of justice. I mean, there's Nathan who confronted King David or a big one, Moses, who confronted Pharaoh or even Daniel, who resisted all of King Darius's proclamations and refused to bow down. I, I think it shows that the key players in the biblical narrative weren't the kings and the pharaohs. They were those who were outside those traditional modes of power and who understand a totally different type of power, which is the power of truth and the power of love, and that how that's often, very often at odds with power, and at least political and religious power like we're talking about. Um, and Obviously, the greatest example of these resistors was Jesus, who also lived truth and justice and and transformation. And he did this all completely outside the the realm of power and authority. I think maybe you mentioned this already, Gary Allen. He was a nobody from nowhere who changed the world. But he did it through sacrifice and love and courage and and the ability to speak truth to power. He he never courted power. He always sided with the poor and the oppressed. The beauty, of course, is that Jesus stood in a long lineage of, of prophets who were bold enough to speak truth to power and like him, our role is not to seek power, but to be prophetic. And I'm not talking about the crazies on TV that predict the future or, you know, predict end times or apocalyptic things. 
I, I'm really talking about the prophetic task of of speaking truth to power and being standing in opposition to the abuse of power, much like the thousands of protesters we witnessed all summer long who marched in the streets, who protested uh, systemic violence and, and gun violence. We need modern-day prophets to join in this line, to join in this lineage, like Dr. Martin Luther King or Dorothy Day or I think of Oscar Romero. I mean, all of these individuals were willing to use their position of, of authority to speak truth to power in order to change societies from the bottom up. And in so doing, I think they exposed the claims and the tactics of the powerful as being unjust. So what might it look like for us to join that prophetic uh, cloud of witnesses who are willing to confront power as opposed to court it? And one last thing I do wonder about is, is it even really possible to have power and have that prophetic voice? Because for the ancient prophets, but also for these modern day ones, they had a voice and a platform um, and they spoke out. And a lot of times people rallied around them, but they never sought to turn that into power or into now and like, I'm going to promote myself and, and try to overthrow and now I'll be in charge. Um, and I think it's interesting that it's always these people who don't have power because they have nothing to lose. I think the ones who have power ultimately struggle to have the prophet the prophetic voice because they know they could lose what they have. They know they could lose that power that they have. Um, you know, it's like if. If you cozy up to a president in order to help your religion advance, they could always take away what they've given you in order to advance your religion. So then you are always in their pocket, always ready to do their bidding because you have something to lose. And I think that's something worth considering, too, because we can only speak truth to power when we're unafraid and when we're where we realize like the kingdom of God is is what matters. And so none of these other things matter and all these other things pass also. We can have the power in the here and now, but it's going to go eventually and the kingdom of God will always remain. So um, unless you have something else, Gary Allen, I, I think we should probably stop. We've been talking about this for a long time yeah. and we could go on forever. I know. Well, you know, and it's kind of funny. I mean, our first uh, episodes of this podcast, we, we've sort of tackled like three major things. And, <laughs> you know, you said it best at the very beginning that these aren't just abstract conversations to have, you know, in the in the ivory tower of sort of intellectualism. I mean, purity culture, power and patriarchy impact our lives on a daily basis. And the goal is not just to deconstruct them, but it's to reconstruct a new faith, a fresh faith that looks like our founder. And in many ways, you know, Christ stood in opposition to all three of these. So, yeah, we could mm. probably go on and on. We might have some follow-up um, podcast episodes on every one of these. But for now, 
I'm kind of tired. Like I, <laughs> we, we, we've mentioned a lot of things here today. and Yeah, and there's a lot I'm, I'm to sure. think about. And But yeah. Gary Allen and I have had lots of discussions about this leading up to this recording. So as a result, many of the things that weren't able to make it into this podcast are uh, articles on our website now. So if you're interested in going even deeper on this topic of power and how it relates to religion, we will have those up on our website. So you can find them in our show notes or on our website. Our website is sophiasociety.org. That's Sophia with a P-H, not an F. Um, and I guess that means we're done with the three Ps, uh, or at least this mini-series. Like Gary Allen said, we will definitely be talking about all of these in one way or another, I'm sure in tons of episodes coming up. We have so many plans for interviews and for topics to talk about. But more than anything, we really want to showcase other people's faith journeys and talk about, as Gary Allen just said, not just how to deconstruct what's toxic, but how to rebuild something much better and truer and more beautiful in its place. And so we'll be talking about how to rebuild a faith that is not based on the three Ps, but instead based on love and truth and beauty and goodness, which are all aspects of the divine. So please stay tuned for those. And also, if you think there's someone we should interview, please connect us. If It's especially helpful if you can connect us directly to them. But if that's not possible, at least feel free to send us recommendations either on social media or by email. We will have links to our social media and to our email address in the show notes, and you can find those at holyheretics.org. And finally, don't forget that we are a nonprofit organization and we do rely on the generosity of listeners like you to keep the lights on and keep making great content. So if you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us with a monthly contribution on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash holyheretics. Yes, please. Woohoo. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith in Foxholes, and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge. 